sermon text this morning is Jeremiah 31, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be married. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you and your word. God, you are greater than our hearts. God, you're greater even than our imagination or our comprehension. And yet you have spoken to us clearly and definitively in your word to reveal your nature, to reveal, um, as we see here, your goodness and your kindness towards your people. God, we are gathered together to hear this today. We're gathered together to hear your word, to hear you speaking of yourself, to hear you proclaiming your goodness and your kindness to us. And Lord, we come to worship you in that. And so I pray, God, that you would give us receptive ears, that you would give us hearts ready to, uh, to take in this truth, and you would give us lives ready to live out what you've called in your word this morning, specifically as we look at your joy. God, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our Advent series. So as you know, um, oh yes, our preschoolers can be dismissed. I'm not used to saying that, but they can be. All right, yes, so um, we've been looking through our Advent uh, themes each week. We've had a different theme for each uh, Sunday. So uh, two weeks ago, our first sermon in our Advent series, we looked at hope and the hope that Christ brings in his coming. And then the week after that, we looked at love and, and God's unchanging, never stopping, steadfast love towards his people. This week, we are going to be looking at joy. We're going to be looking at joy this morning. So I'll just address the, uh, the elephant in the, in the pulpit, uh, because I am kind of a weird choice to preach on joy. Um, and your laughter tells me that it, it hurts a little bit, but I understand. Um, I even have, this, this is really going to be fun, because I have some stories that kind of illustrate it. Um, so in, in middle school, um, during Christmas, um, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, we were opening presents, and I got to my present for that year, or one of my presents, and opened it, and it was a pair of pants. I looked up, and I pulled them out, and I looked at my family, and I just said, pants, in a way that was apparently so awkward and deadpan that, like, I get made fun of 
to this day about it, like a decade later. I, apparently, you just have to see it, but it, it was apparently that bad. Um, and so there's that. In high school, one of my friend's dads referred to me almost exclusively as Avery the Stoic. Um, so like that was my nickname with him. Uh, in college, my, my best friend, um, he made a lot of jokes. Uh, well, I, it wasn't along the lines. It was this line every time. Uh, that I'm one bad day away from becoming a serial killer. And so, all right, so that made me mad because I didn't understand why, like, not mad on the merits. I'm not like, man, you're like, you're poking at my weakness or whatever. It was like, I don't get it. Like, what are you talking about? And then one day I watched a video of me speaking live and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, <laughs> so I'm an odd choice to be Speaking on joy, and, and truth be told, like, that's all amusing, and it's, it's fun, and it really is. It, it's meant to be. But it hasn't always been that way. I haven't always been so, you know, whatever I am right now. Um, when I was in elementary and middle school, I was actually, like, a pretty sensitive kid. Like, I, like when things would, like, not go my way or whatever, I'd get really frust- frustrated. I'd get, like, upset. Um, I'd even, like, cry in public sometimes. And so, as you can imagine, like, fifth, sixth grade boy, they, they ate that up. Like, um, so I was picked on a lot. So as, like, time grew on, I, I kind of tried to get a little bit of emotional distance between, like, myself and the things that were going on around me. And eventually I became Avery the Stoic. Um, and I know that makes it sound, like, really dramatic, like I'm a Batman villain or something. But it just, what I mean is that as time grew on, like, I really became uh, a, a bit more distant, you know, emotionally. And so it made it hard to have joy, right? Like, it's, I think a lot of men could probably relate to that story. It's not incredibly unusual, I don't say, at least I hope. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of us experienced that. And when I got into college, I realized it was getting pretty bad. Like, I'm like, I am, I have way less joy than I believe I'm meant to. And so, as the Lord does from time to time, he intervened powerfully in that, and uh, came through uh, reading a book, because I'm a dork, and like all interventions in my life come through uh, reading a book. And so, uh, by chance, I picked up Desiring God by John Piper. And it was weird, because nobody told me to read that book. I didn't go online and find out about it or anything. I was really, I was just down at the Goodwill bookstore down the street, just found it. I was like, I think I should read this. So I picked it up, I read it cover to cover. And the idea behind the book is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, you know, that's a good slogan, but if you're not familiar with it, it may need some explanation. Basically, it means that we were designed for joy, that God created us for joy. And when we experience God's joy, it shows his worth. Just like a spouse finds joy uh, in their spouse. When you hear about that, you think, well, they, they must have a pretty good husband or have a pretty good wife if they're finding joy in him. Well, the same way, when we find joy in God, it demonstrates his worth. It demonstrates his glory in his world. And so uh, this morning, what I want to do is to express to you, to bring you alongside and see some of this joy that I find in the Lord. To see the joy that is, is present with him, that he gives to his people. And so to do that, we're looking here in Jeremiah 31. So Jeremiah um, has been where we've been sourcing these, these Advent sermons for hope, joy, and now, uh, excuse me, hope, love, and now joy. 
And you can, Jeremiah can feel like an unusual place to preach on themes of hope and love and joy because one of the most central events of Jeremiah is the Babylonian conquest and exile of Jerusalem. It was a pretty watershed event in the Old Testament, one of the most important things that happened to the, uh, to the people of Israel outside of, of Sinai because it was God's final judgment on their continued rebellion against him and his law. And it wasn't rebellion in, in small kinds of ways, like telling white lies or that kind of thing, but it was rebellion in the sense of constructing alternate places to worship pagan deities. It was oppressing the poor, the widowed, the orphaned, the otherwise helpless. It was, uh, you know, extorting them for the good of the rich. It was continued rebellion in these egregious ways, and it was unrepentant rebellion. And eventually, God brought judgment that came through the Babylonian people. Um, God had since continued prophets to warn of this. He didn't leave his people in darkness, though uh, the, the priests did not teach on God's law faithfully. The kings did not lead the people towards righteousness. And there were even false prophets uh, going around and saying, like, ah, oh, man, everything's good. Like, you're a good guy. It's a good place. I mean, look, that's a nice temple. Like, God wouldn't let that thing be destroyed. And essentially, as Jeremiah says, proclaiming peace where there was no peace. But God sent prophets like Jeremiah to warn of the coming judgment, coming destruction. Jeremiah specifically himself ministered alongside of that Babylonian, um, Babylonian uh, conquest, captivity, exile. So he was able to warn right up before the fact that this was coming. He was able after the fact to look back, to help the people of Israel look back and interpret it accurately, not just as a fluke, not just as God abandoning them or God ha not having power, but God actually bringing punishment for them and their sinfulness. But Jeremiah also promises a restoration, that God would take the remnant of what was left through this judgment and that he would restore them, to bring them back to the land that he had given them. And it's in that that we have been focusing on these themes of hope and love and today, joy. Because as these people, as we're going to see in Jeremiah 31, 10 through 14, as these people are brought back to their homeland, they're brought back with rejoicing, they're brought back with joy as they experience God's goodness. So, um, we often talk in, in Christmas about joy, right? We often talk about joy, and we usually mean it in terms of like merriment, you know, like Christmas trees and lights and, and celebrations and, and family get-together, and those things are all incredible, and there is some joy in that. But what I want to see this morning, as we see here in Jeremiah 31, is that God's joy is deeper, more satisfying, is more lasting, more secure, and just overall better than any kind of joy that can be experienced in this world. So to do that, we're going to uh, begin just by looking at the details of this passage, right, what it says and its intentions. So we're going to look at the audience, the content, the purpose of the passage, and then we're going to make some observations about our joy that we can draw from Jeremiah 31. So my aim overall, though, is to help you see one central truth, that we as Christians enjoy a distinct and special joy that we have 
in the Lord. Our joy is unlike any other. It is more secure, more sure, more satisfying and attractive than any counterfeit joy that this world has to offer. So, but to see that, to get there, to see those observations about our joy, we need to begin by looking at this passage here in Jeremiah 31. So, um, this passage, it's a continuation from where we left off last week. And I I literally mean we're picking up with the next verse from where we left off uh, last week. So, last week, uh, we we talked about uh, basically um, what God was going to do, which is bring his people back from captivity in Babylon, and why he was going to do it, which is his love that he has for his people. This week, we're going to be focusing more on the experience, on the experience of God's people as they were led back, what it was like for God's people as they led back, or as they were led back. But one of the most uh, noticeable differences between here, verse 10 through 14, from verses 1 through 9, is that the audience changes, or God begins speaking to a different group of people. So we'll start there. Last week, last week, God was addressing his people. He was addressing the, the people of Judah who were in exile, right? So um, he was, it was basically a love letter to his people, Judah, even as they were there in punishment and in exile, Um, Like verse 3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. Verse 9 says that I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn, right? This this beginning passage, 1 through 9, was meant to express God's great love for his people, Judah. And also it was meant to promise a restoration to give them hope, like verse 5, which says, You shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria, Uh, The planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit, whereas in uh, chapter 29, as we had seen earlier, he was telling them to plant gardens in Babylon because you're going to be there a while. He's saying you're going to be brought back to your homeland uh, to to plant where uh, God has given you um, this, this land for you to keep. So this week, however, when we get to verse 10, we see that this isn't addressed, this section is not addressed to the people of Judah but instead is addressed to the Gentiles around them, addressed to the nations. Verse 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. So, whereas these first few verses were addressing Judah, these verses are addressing the people around them. Which is kind of interesting because he keeps talking about Judah. So, what exactly is being proclaimed to these Gentile nations? Well, as I said, most centrally, it has to do with the experience of God's people. God is basically saying, hey, all of you nations that are surrounding Israel, I want you to listen up. I'm about to bring my people back, and here's the kind of joy that they are going to experience in my bringing them back. He makes basically three prophecies in this passage. Number one, that God will restore his otherwise helpless people. Verse 11 says that for the Lord has ransomed Jacob. And he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. So in other words, continuing on with what's been said already um, in the earlier passage of prophesying their return, he's saying that God is going to bring back these people. These people that you thought that God had abandoned, he is going to restore and bring them back. And it will not be because they are strong and they have worked themselves out of the situation, but because God has done it. Because he is the one that has intervened 
and he is the one who has brought them back in, his, in these words here, from hands too strong for Jacob. So, number one, God will res- powerfully restore his otherwise helpless people. Number two, God will richly provide for his people. Verse 12 says that they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. This description uh, that um, the Lord gives here of what it's going to be like for the captives to return home uses words like wine, oil, uh, the flock, right, like the meat. These weren't just bare necessities. This wasn't just what you need to get by. But God is saying, when I bring my people back, they won't just be getting by anymore, but they will thrive. They will, uh, they will be like a watered garden rather than like a languishing plant that's just getting by out in the desert. That I'm going to richly and lavishly give them uh, above and beyond what they simply need, but I will provide abundantly for them. So God will powerfully restore his people, and he will provide over and above even just their necessities. Finally, we see that the people will rejoice greatly in what God has done. Probably the most powerful two verses in describing what these Israelites are going to experience here is 13 and 14. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So here at the end, this is a prophecy of, uh, of the kind of joy that the people of Israel are going to be able to experience in their return. This is expressed through like just merriment and fun that the people will, will enjoy, where the, the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old uh, shall be merry, that, that all the people who come back will be able to, to, to dance and rejoice and just have fun and enjoy what the Lord has done. They'll be able to, to uh, enjoy through, the, through just the, the sheer delight of it. To express through a change of outlook this joy that the Lord brings. He says, I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Right? So the people of Israel, as they were coming back from uh, exile, they were, as uh, verse 9 says in 31, they were coming with weeping. They were coming out of a terrible situation, right? They're, they've been brought into Babylon. Their, their national identities, gone. Their, their uh, felt sense of the presence of God, gone. Their worship of the Lord, gone. Their, uh, their hope, gone. And their joy, gone. And so they come back with weeping. But the Lord says, if, if I could just, re, like, if I was reaching in and just ripping out the mourning and just replacing it with joy, I am going to put joy in their hearts. They are coming back not just with weeping, but with true joy and gladness instead of sorrow. I am bringing them back not as a disheveled um, shell that is, uh, that is weeping and mourning, but with great joy. 
And so it's expressed through merriment, it's expressed through a change of outlook, and this joy is expressed in satisfaction. Verse 14 says that my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Truly, when they were in Babylon, they were uh, something much less than satisfied. The best that they had was hope that things would get better. They were, progress was really all they could hope for, but God says, won't just be getting better, but they will be satisfied with me. They will have everything they need because I am going to give them my goodness and they will come back with satisfaction, not still wanting and longing. So the basic idea here is that God is explaining to these people, these nations that are surrounding Israel, that I am saving my people and I'm doing it in a glorious, abundantly providing, joyful way. You're going to see my glory and you're going to see the joy of my people as they return. So what's the reason for this prophecy? What's the reason for this prophecy that um, the Lord has given here to these nations? Right? Why is he addressing them and explaining what he's going to do for his people? Why is it even their business? Right? So there's some possible, but I think insufficient explanations. God could be talking to these nations and saying, I'm going to bring my people back in one way to kind of put the nations in their place, right, so to speak, like to say, I just want you to know you're not as loved as my people. I don't love you as much. Um, number two, I don't protect you as much, right? These are my special people, um, and you're not one of them. In a sense, kind of bragging over them. It could be to put the other nations on notice, right, to kind of notify them. If you try to mess with Israel, I want you to know, like, I haven't forgotten them. They're still my people, and I'm still going to mess you up if you try to, uh, to take them and uh, harm them as the Babylonians did. But the tone of those kind of purposes, of trying to boast over these nations or to, um, to warn the other nations, it doesn't really fit with this passage. It doesn't really uh, jive with what I think is going on here. I think the most likely reason, the most likely reason that we uh, see um, the Lord speaking to these other nations is to demonstrate God's care for his chosen people and to, importantly, to prepare the nations to receive what would become an open invitation into this joy as well. To help them get ready for the salvation that was coming, not just to Israel, but to them as well. For them to be able to see the kind of love that God has towards his people and the kind of love that they would be invited to as well when Christ came. Because in the coming of Christ, we would see one who is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel, as Simeon said when he saw Christ in Luke 2. So God's salvation would come in even greater measure than the salvation he brought when he brings these uh, Judeans back from exile. Because in Christ, he was saving not just the people of Judah, not just the people of Israel, but the entire world, inviting all of the world into the kind of joy that these people would experience here in Jeremiah 10, uh, 31, 10 through 14. It's because of that invitation that we can look on this passage, this description of the kind of joy that these people were going to be experiencing on their return. We can look at this and see lessons, observations for our own joy. Because what God provides in some measure here 
for these Judeans. He provides even more richly for his church in Christ. What, is, what we see in this, this salvation from captivity, we see even greater measure in salvation from sin. So we see, I think, five observations that we can make about our joy here from Jeremiah 31, 10 through 14. First thing we see is that our joy is one through salvation. Our joy is one through salvation. In other words, the joy that these Israelite people have here, it's not cheap, it's not automatic, it's one. It's just not one by them. Their joy that they experience comes because of something that God did for them. Here it's said that God redeems Israel from hands that are too strong for him. It is true that their joy is not abstract or baseless. Their joy comes because of what God did on their behalf in saving them. In the same way, our joy is grounded in the fact that God has brought salvation for us. Our joy is found in something that has happened. Our salvation from our own state of sin. So to understand, understand where... Um, our salvation uh, brings such joy, we have to understand the state that we're in. The reason that this was so joyful for the uh, Israelites to return to was because of the, the uh, terribleness of their captivity in Babylon, right? So when they were in Babylon, they were away from their family, they were away from their, their homeland, they were away from, their, uh, from the land that God had promised to them, they were away from everything that they knew. It was because they were brought back that they were brought into joy. In the same way, our present state, our state of sin, at least, is both miserable and inescapable. It hurts, and we can't get out, right? It's like a, it's like a headlock. When, you know, like when you're a kid, like, uh, especially if there's a kid that's bigger than you, gets you in the headlock, and you're there as long as, as long as they want you to be there, right? Or at least maybe it's for me. I, I'm starting to sound like really pathetic as a kid today. But, um, but yeah, so like sin in the same way, it locks you in. It's miserable. You don't want to be in, and you can't get out by your own strength and your own struggling. Israel was stuck in Babylon, and they couldn't get out. They didn't have an army. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have organization, and they were being watched closely to make sure that none of that happens. In the same way, in sin, we are stuck and without hope on our own. The difference that makes it even worse than the state the Babylonians were in is like at least the Israelites wanted to get out. What's so awful about our sin is that many times we want to stay in it, foolishly as that might be. We desire to stay with what burns us, with what hurts us so much. And the only hope that we have of being let out is through God's salvation. Just as he brought salvation and brought the Israelites out, not, again, because of their own strength, but because of his, we have hope in the salvation that God has brought in Christ. God sent Christ to redeem us from our sins even when we were stuck in it, even when we didn't necessarily ask for it. As God looked mercifully upon his people of Israel and brought salvation for them, God looks mercifully upon uh, upon the world to bring salvation to his church. And as this salvation led to joy for the people of Israel, 
so our salvation too should lead to joy. What God has done for us is incredible and indescribable. What was brought in Christ was salvation of mankind from our deepest need. It is rescue. If this is worth rejoicing, being able to return home, how much more being freed from sin, from the internal uh, struggle that we have with ourselves, from the, the, the hatred that we have towards God, from the source of everything that's wrong in our world, we're freed from that. And we're free not just from that like now, but we, our whole direction has been changed. We now have eternity with God to look forward to because of the salvation that was brought in Christ. If there's a cause for joy in life, it's that. We find our salvation because it's been, or we find our joy because it's been won for us through salvation. So we see that our joy is won through salvation. And we see also that our joy is kept securely. Our joy is kept securely. So people here as they are returning, um, their return is not based on their ability to get back. Their chance to return is based on the Lord and his strength and his desire to bring his people back. As, as Matthew highlighted last week, the reason that they're brought back is because of the Lord and his love. In verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's God's love for his people of Israel that uh, motivates him to bring them back. And furthermore, it's God's power that enables it to happen, right? Like in verse 11 of the day, that the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. So in other words, their return and the joy that they have in it is secure because of the one who is doing it. They can know that their joy and this, this redemption they have is secure because God is the one who's bringing it about. Unfortunately, we tend a lot of times to put all of our joy in, in earthly joys and earthly temporal uh, pleasures. And ultimately, that's a really bad idea, right? Like putting all of our joys in this, this kind of earthly joys that we can get on the cheap that are present at hands for us all the time. Um, it's, it's so fragile and prone to break, right? Like putting all of our love and joy in the things of this world is kind of like a toddler that makes like a thin porcelain doll they're loving, right? Like they, it's not a matter of if but when there's going to be like immense disappointment and like an existential crisis, right? But that thing's going to break. In the same way, when we put our hope in earthly joys, they are going to let us down. Earthly joys, just things that, that we put our, our pleasure in, they can be lost to us in a couple of ways. They can spoil and they can wither. They can spoil in the sense that they can be quickly corrupted when our expectations aren't met or when disappointment abounds or when, uh, when we're otherwise met with something unexpected. Like the new job that was so exciting at first can quickly become misery when a new boss is hired. Or the friend you, you love and care so much for, a relationship to just spoil like that when they stab you in the back. Your beloved pet dies suddenly. Like, these are all terrible things that happen to the things that we put our joy and trust in for our source of joy. Earthly joys, they can also wither over time. Eventually, they just kind of, uh, through repetition and time, grow into something else, right? Like, 
For instance, um, if you're like me and you, you like to hobby hop, right, like you have something that you really love for a certain period of time, and then it just kind of becomes less something that's joyful and just like another thing on my to-do list, and then it's like, I'm going to find a new hobby now, right? Like uh, the things that we find joy in, they become rote over time through repetition and, and time. And relationships even can be like this, where, you know, you, you find someone, you think they're the one, you start dating them, and there's this excitement at the beginning. And sometimes, you know, that lasts. It turns into something wonderful, and it, uh, it changes, grows something more steady. Uh, marriage follows, but sometimes it doesn't. And that uh, joy that you had at the beginning turns into something uh, not worth keeping. Ultimately, earthly joys are just unstable. They're just fragile. But the joy of the Lord is both indestructible and corruptible. It is steady and eternal. We know that God, the joy that we have from the Lord is steady because of, as I've said, the, what we see with him giving uh, to his people Israel. We know that the joy of the Lord is reliable because of God's love and God's power. Just as God loved the Israelites and continued his faithfulness towards them, we have that in even greater measure because we know that his love towards us is based in Christ, based in his love towards the Son. We see God's power given uh, to, to the people of Israel, but it's important to remember it was through God's power that they were in captivity as well. But we have even more sure that, uh, that God will not use his power to destroy us, but because of Christ and the fact that we are in him, that all things are working together for our good, and that ultimately God is, uh, is going to um, bring us to himself because of our foundation and our identity in Christ. Here's my, my overall point. Your joy in the Lord cannot be stripped from you because of who you're placing it in. He is sure, he is steady, he is constant, and he is uh, able to bring that joy to completion in eternity. So, we see that our joy is won through salvation. Our joy is kept securely. We also see that our joy is mixed with sorrow. That is abundantly clear in the, in the experience here of these Israelites. That their joy is mixed with sorrow. As I mentioned already, it, it says there in verse 9 that these people are going to come back with weeping. And in, uh, in verse 12, excuse me, verse 13, that God will turn their mourning into joy, right? The mourning is there. So we see that this joy that's provided in the Lord is true, real, steady, satisfying, all those things. But even so, it's not this kind of euphoric high that just obliterates our current circumstances. It makes it so that we never experience any kind of sorrow again. So I'm aware that in Christmas, when we celebrate joy, um, for some people, the nonstop merriment, the light, the, the fun songs in every store, the, the lights and everything, it's annoying for some people. And I have some sympathy for that. It's not me. I, I like it all. I'm, I'm Mr. Christmas, if you couldn't tell. Um, and uh, some people, though, I'm, I'm even more sympathetic, that Christmas is a time of immense sorrow, uh, that it's associated with some really bad memories. Well, 
we see here that Christian joy, the joy that we have in the Lord, is both realistic and hopeful. It's realistic in the sense that it's able to look at the circumstances of life and realize that we still live in a world that is broken, that is hurting, that's full of sin and sinful people. And as such, disappointment and pain is bound to come. Sorrow is a part of the Christian life, but uh, the, the joy we have is realistic. It recognizes that. Just as these people were coming back with mourning, if they need the Lord to turn uh, their mourning into joy. But even so, our joy is hopeful. Two weeks ago, we talked about the idea that, that hope is being able to look beyond our pr- present circumstances to something better that's coming. The joy that we have now is rooted in a great part because in that God is going to bring our joy to completion and when he comes again. Right? That, that our joy is, is present to some degree now, but it will be an even greater measure in the future. So as such, our, our joy is not just like an annoying cheerfulness, right? It overlooks the pain of life. But rather, we trust God with our joy. We trust him to have joy now. We trust him to bring even greater joy in the future. So we see that our joy now is mixed with sorrow. Despite that, though, despite that, we see that our joy leads to satisfaction. Our joy leads to satisfaction. So our final trust in God's uh, joy that he brings is that he will finally satisfy us, even though the world has left us continually disappointment, disappointed. So sorrow is a part of life in God's world, and Instead, though, we, of the sorrow that we can expect, we can expect satisfaction in the joy of the Lord, ultimately. That's what verse 14 says. It says, that my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. As I mentioned earlier, every other kind of joy is too fragile. It's not just too fragile, it's insufficient. It, the joy that the world brings is just not enough. It doesn't satisfy. It holds you over to the next joy at best, right? But the joy that the Lord brings will satisfy in a way that nothing else can. So I'll, I'll tell you just a brief story about someone that I met one time who doubted like satisfaction in God. So this was uh, when Paige and I were in Ukraine, I think, I think on our first trip. And so um, we were there and they had this Sunday school class for people who were wanting to improve their English. And so it was a Sunday school class, but it was mostly unbelievers who were, who were looking for, a, you know, an extra English lesson on Sunday. And so um, I was teaching the class because somebody was out or something. I can't, I can't remember the details. But anyway, I was teaching this class on that Sunday. And I decided that I was going to teach on the joy of heaven. And I can't remember the passage, but I remember one of the things that I taught was that we would be infinitely satisfied in heaven. Well, there was a woman there who took issue with that and, um, and then spoke through Ukrainian to a translator in a very aggressive way, um, letting me know that, no, 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 there is no such thing as satisfaction. That is not the highest good that we could want in life, but it's progress. So what she means is that if we were to become satisfied, that we would be bored, 
And so she was saying that in heaven, things will just continually get better and better. Um, I don't think she even believed in heaven. I think she was just arguing hypothetically. It was, a, it was a very weird situation. At that point, I really had no clue what to say, to be honest with you. I was just kind of like, I think, I think we will be satisfied, actually. And uh, what I, I wish I had said now is the reason that feels true is that we in this life have never experienced true satisfaction. There is nothing in this world that can provide true and real satisfaction like the kind that will come when we are truly with Christ forever. The joy that the Lord brings is the only joy that brings true and real and complete satisfaction that satisfies the every desire of our heart. We see that our joy it leads to satisfaction here in Jeremiah 31. 14. The last thing that I want to mention is that our joy marks our sanctification. Our joy marks our sanctification. What I mean by that is that the joy here of these Israelites is meant to be distinct. It marks them as different, right? Usually when we think of the word satisfaction, or excuse me, I'm stuck on the last one. We usually when we think of sanctification, we're thinking in terms of like growth and holiness. That's usually what we associate with the word. What it means at its root is to be set apart. This joy that the Israelites were experiencing was meant to set them apart from the other nations. That's why um, God is addressing these other nations in the first place, is to explain the joy that his people are having. These people of Israel, they were meant to be holy. They were meant to be distinct from the people around them. And we often associate that with like, the moral code and the law and like the religious ceremonies, right? Like the Ten Commandments, the, the sacrifices and those kind of things. And we think that that's how they were supposed to be distinct from their neighbors, and that's true. But also they were meant to express this kind of uh, joy that could only come through the Lord and knowing him, being with him in his presence, what God is doing in addressing these nations around them is showing uh, that this joy of my people marks them as my people. It shows that I am with them because the kind of joy that they're experiencing can only come from me. And so uh, they were meant to be marked as distinct in the same way the church today is meant to be marked as distinct in our joy, and the joy that we have for the Lord. The joy that we have as Christians is unique. It is, as I've said, I've, I've described it the whole time. It's, it's the only joy that is secure, that is satisfying. It's the only joy that's rooted in something real at the same time. It's more than just good vibes. Our joy is real and distinct from any other kind of joy that can be experienced. The joy that we have comes through and only in Christ. Because of his salvation, because of his work, because of his life, we have real and true joy. The Christmas message is one of joy not because of the lights and the trees and all of that. Those things are great. The, Chris, the Christmas message is one of joy because it involves the Christ who came to bring salvation to rescue us from our bondage and to give us new life. So what does that call us to do? 
right? Like, what is this idea of joy, this distinct Christian joy we have? What does it call us to do? Well, in a sense, just enjoy it. It's joy. It's meant to be enjoyed. That's the, that's the whole point, right? Like, the joy that the Lord brings, the Lord provides, is an end in itself. Spend your time, your energy, your love, getting more of it, right? Be a glutton for joy. Take as much as you can. Enjoy the joy of the Lord. That is part of the whole point of this. You're meant to. That's your purpose. That's why you were created, to rejoice and enjoy Him. Enjoy what He's done in Christ. Celebrate. Uh, worship Him and find true joy in Him. Live in joy. Also, bring others into this joy. It's distinct. It's different. It's, it's attractive in and of itself. Show it to others. Explain it to others. Um, be, be a light that, that shines and shows it the, the light of the Gentiles, right? Show the joy that is present in Christ. The, the joy that these Israelites experience, that we experience in even greater degree, go and tell others about it. Truth is that the joy that we have is utterly distinct and utterly enjoyable. It's worth your time. It's worth your energy. It's worth your affections because God is worth it and because Christ and what he has done is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are recipients of a grace too great to imagine. These people of Israel that you saved, God, we rejoice in what you did for them, but we rejoice in even greater measure for what you've done in your church in Christ in providing salvation from our sins, providing hope for a future, providing a basis for our love for one another and our growth away from sin. God, I pray this week that you would help us to grow in holiness and in joy. I pray that for those in here who might just feel worn out this Christmas, who might feel uh, the weight of suffering, a weight of pain, God, I pray that you would give them true and real and lasting joy. Pray that you give it in greater measure than they've ever experienced and ever known. I pray in, in the same way that you would help us as a church to be one that is full of joy because you've given it to us. God, I pray, please give us a mind for, uh, for, for service and for love for one another that abounds to that joy. I pray that we would be characterized by this distinct joy in our lives, and our ministry, and in, in all we do here at the Church of Trace Crossing. God, we pray all of this in Christ, in his name. Amen.